start climate change education earlier than it started now. Like as we were mentioning before, we didn't really have any exposure in school until high school. I think it could be introduced younger and maybe and maybe that way people won't end up having these like climate epiphanies super late and then freaking out because it'll just be something that kids will have known about for a while. I think having different types of climate change electives would help. Like, as you said, like um, maybe a business climate change class would be really interesting. Cool cool stuff yeah, like plot of a movie kind of stuff could be starring i don't know who would be a good person to play david bookfinder like uh, george clooney maybe i don't know <laughs> testing testing hey i'm ian and i'm sophia and welcome to talking with green teachers this is the environmental education podcast where we discuss recent developments big ideas and creative approaches to teaching green in this episode, and I think there are definitely some basics that you could cover in middle school or even elementary school, and then go farther from there. And we've talked to our guests about this. A lot of them have come to a consensus that rather than like one separate course, there should probably be integration into all the subjects um, of climate change, which I think makes the most sense because like you were saying before, it's not just a scientific problem, like there are social aspects too, and you could connected to pretty much every class. Climate change is the proverbial elephant in the room for educators. When should it be introduced? How should it be handled? In which classes does it apply? Gabriel Gitter Dance, Kevin Zhao, and Adam Rudd of Hunter College High School in Manhattan, New York City, have given these and many more questions plenty of thought over the past few months as they've begun their own podcast, Bridging the Carbon Gap in collaboration with City Atlas at the CUYN Institute for Sustainable Cities. Ian chatted with the three high school seniors about their experiences with climate education. I remember when I first learned about climate change, I remember the place on the carpet of my grade three classroom where I was sitting. I can remember it vividly. What about for you guys? Where did it start? We'll start with Adam. I remember back in, in like kindergarten, actually, we had this... Uh, this campaign against idling I, I i like idling used to be a big thing i don't know i feel like i haven't heard about it as much as in that kindergarten classroom but they made us make these posters that said uh don't idle and yeah yeah so i, I don't i don't know if i remember it like being very i don't think i remember being very conscious of it connecting to climate change but now i know that that was uh, related yeah hindsight being 2020 uh, how about you gabriel I don't think I can pinpoint like one specific moment where I first like heard the term climate change. I would say when I began to become like a bit more knowledgeable and educated was soon before we started the podcast in 11th grade um, and maybe in 10th grade too, because I think Mr. Pinkerton, who's my physics teacher in 11th grade, like had a few lessons on it. And before then, I hadn't really done any kind of formal research or, you know, in a, in a learning setting talking about climate change. So that obviously wasn't when I first heard the term, but that was kind of my first experience with more in-depth learning. Yeah, sort of connecting the dots. And uh, Kevin, what about on your end? 
same as Adam, I don't remember like a, a specific mention of climate change, but in elementary school, there was this like slogan we had, like, um, I think it was like recycle, reduce and reuse. Yep. The three R's. And I didn't really uh, know that was related to climate change, but now it's the connection is more clear. So overall, it's pretty piecemeal and almost accidental in some ways. At what stage did you first really understand the magnitude of it, even just beyond the the science side of it? I mean, the social aspect, the economic aspect. When did that, that sort of the penny drop for thinking, you know, this is a really big deal? I would say maybe just kind of a gradual process from like when I first started learning about it in school in 10th or 11th grade throughout like the episodes we've done on our podcast. I wouldn't say there's been one, you know, big moment. Like we talked to a climate psychologist, Ro Randall, who explained that some people have like an epiphany moment where they realize like the magnitude of the problem. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm not sure I've had that large moment yet, but I've definitely feel like I have accumulated some understanding throughout the past year or two. Yeah. Either Adam or Kevin, have you had that epiphany moment or was it the same sort of thing? Pretty gradual. I mean, it was kind of the, like the same, but um, not to be cliche, but back in like ninth and 10th grade, um, I would see these articles of like, oh, the Arctic's melting, like polar bears are starting to lose their homes. And I was like, wow, yeah, kind of serious. And then I started to get into like the podcast and me and Gabe also were involved in this Earth Week committee at our school. Right. And Adam? And for me, I think it, it actually had to do with one of our, one of our episodes, uh, we had a Columbia professor named Radley Horton who told us about his, his research, and his research involved the impacts of climate change on uh, certain medical conditions, so uh, like heat stroke, cardiac arrest, and basically his research showed that these medical conditions were worsened on days where, on, on hotter days, and he, he basically linked these medical conditions to climate change, and I thought that was a very concrete effect, or it, it was an effect that, that spoke to me. Uh, that probably made me say like, "Whoa, this is a pretty pretty big thing." But uh, but I, I would I would say um, that that so far, well, I can't speak for everyone, but 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 I would I think that sure. that we have been able to distance ourselves somewhat from having like a an epiphany moment or a complete like realization about like how bad climate change is. I think e either because we're still we're still in the process of learning about it, or just because. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know if anyone has any other reasons why that why that is. But do you also get that sense, guys? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I would agree that like distancing myself can be easy at times, or just like not thinking much about climate change unless I'm working on the podcast directly, which you know I guess shouldn't necessarily be the case. I don't think it's uncommon though. I mean, we hear a lot in the research about apathy regarding climate change and how the phrase itself just has such a negative connotation. And I think part of the fault lies in educators because we spend so much time in the problem realm. And I know you guys in some of your episodes have talked about spending more time in the solutions realm and also in the local realm. I really enjoyed your fifth episode in talking about the impact on wines. And I'm personally not a wine drinker, but I know many wine connoisseurs and they go on about all the bizarre descriptions. Oh, this tastes like graphite mixed with wood chips. And I'm like, I don't know why you would ever want to drink that tastes like that, but power to you. But the point being, wine is very popular. And if climate change impacts the taste of your wine, the production of your wine, the cost of your wine in your area, people pay attention. Right across from New York State, Fort Erie, Buffalo is Niagara Falls. And that's one of the best areas for growing grapes and producing wine in eastern Canada. 
So that's certainly an area where the impacts of climate change are being felt. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a nonprofit that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. For only $32 a year, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Since the Fridays for the Future movement began on August 20th, 2018, students from around the world have joined peaceful marches to protest the insufficient global response to the climate crisis. In short order, the momentum of this international effort found its way to Hunter College High School. Let's move into sort of from your initial exposure to talking about just how climate change has been handled in your education through the years. And I know broadly speaking, the answer to this question is it hasn't really been handled that much, but where it has come up in school, where has it been? Like what types of classes? So like, as Gabe said before, he had, um, I, like he had Mr. Pinkerton, I was also in the same class. And um, I think we did like a fishbowl discussion, which is like, basically you sit in a circle and anyone can jump in. And um, I don't remember like, like the details, but I remember it was generally about like what people's thoughts were just in general about climate change. And I remember, I think we did a lab or it was an extra credit on something, but it was like, the purpose was to show how like statistics can be manipulated. And like the point was that people sometimes use um, certain statistics to show, oh, climate change isn't serious or doesn't exist. Yeah, everybody can make a graph that doesn't look as severe we see that in the the classic playbook of climate denialism, which comes downstream from folks like Rupert Murdoch, the Koch brothers, ExxonMobil, etc. It's pretty clear what tactics they're going to use. So yes, the manipulation of statistics and graphs is a very big part of it. So this physics class obviously was one area where there was significant coverage of climate change. That was only last year, 11th grade. You guys are seniors now in 12th grade. Has climate change come up anywhere else in school over your entire time in school? Not much better because it was, it was only one year earlier. But uh, but we did have a right. week in chemistry where we where we did greenhouse gases and hmm. how like the, I guess, the ability to absorb light for certain particles uh, and molecules and how that contributes to the greenhouse effect. So 10th grade, 11th grade, just about nothing in elementary school, certainly nothing beyond campaigns that are loosely connected to climate change. Now, obviously, you are three people. You obviously don't represent the education of every student in North America or the world. However, you live in New York City. There's lots of climate activism and research and cutting edge approaches to addressing climate change in New York City. So it seems almost unbelievable that it hasn't worked its way into the curriculum. I mean, we've been talking about climate change since the late 1970s in this continent. And for the most part, the scientific consensus about the severity of it came in the early 1990s when I was very young. <laughs> Yet here we are in the year 2021, and you are at the cusp of finishing high school and apart from work that you've done on your own, you really haven't addressed climate change that much. So what have you done to educate yourselves 
further about it besides your own podcast where you're learning from the re researchers that you're interviewing? I mean, are, are there any readings or any news sources that you've gone to, for example? Well, besides the podcast, as Kevin mentioned earlier, we were, Kevin and I were helping with some other teachers and students to organize like an Earth Week assembly. And I would say we learned, we educated ourselves a bit through that about climate change, um, but that was more kind of just organization and like planning events. So, I mean, besides that, Richard Rice, who are who is like our facilitator from CUNY, sends us articles about our guests or, you know, other articles or tweets that relate connecting current events to climate change. And I would say I've been more aware of it in the news when I see it. Mm. So yeah, pretty much just that outside of our episodes. And does your educational experience kind of mirror others in your peer group? I mean, would it be safe to say that the majority of students in New York City kind of have the same history with climate change education as you three do? Um, I'm not totally sure about other people's experience, but I would like assume that the climate change is like either like in other schools, it's either like as much or even less mentioned than our school. So I, I think it's definitely nice. like a problem. And I just want to mention, I would say like us three, we're, we're almost unlikely candidates to be doing such a such a podcast like how so do you guys remember the the climate march uh in the beginning of 11th grade there's a there was a huge uh climate protest where, where like a walkout wherever everyone left school and probably like half the kids at our school walked out and went to the washington square park i think it was union square park something like that mm -hmm. and we were not any of those kids who, who walked out like interesting for me it, it was just not something that was on my on my radar and there might even be like kids who, well, I, I don't know how to reconcile that because on the one hand, there's a huge, there were a huge section of kids who, who like walked out. And I take that as an indication of them being interested in the topic, but what, like, I wonder what else, what else they, they've done or, or how, or how they feel about how, how they feel about it, what they've done about the issue, how they react to the issue. Yeah. If they're actually worried about it, if some, if people just walked out because everyone else was walking in, I don't know. Just wanted to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some people obviously can't paint everyone with the same brush. We're composed of individuals, and some people join because everyone else is doing it, whereas other people maybe don't join because they're not aware of it. But then when they do become aware of it, they're like, wow, we want to do something about it. And it sounds like the three of you fit into that latter category where at that time it wasn't top of mind. It's certainly top of mind for you now. I mean, you are now doing a podcast or, in quotes, a teen cast where you're interviewing experts and activists about this topic so you're taking an active role guided by yourselves i remember at the time of brexit there was an interesting discussion afterwards about how based on the average life expectancy had the votes been weighted based on average life expectancy the vote would have been different the vote would have been to stay and i think you could draw a pretty clear parallel to climate change if we're going to be making policy decisions on climate change, I think you can make a very strong argument that the younger you are, so therefore the longer you are projected to live based on the average life expectancy, the greater your vote should count. And I think especially with climate change, when we have these timelines like we need to reduce our emissions by these certain benchmarks, 2030, 2050, dates that all four of us are projected to live through, Shouldn't our voices have more weight? Shouldn't your voices have more weight than my voice? To me, that's quite logical. It's, it's mathematics. It makes sense. So in the spirit of that, in giving you voice, 
what would you suggest they do in the education system to plug these significant gaps? I would say like a couple things in terms of the curriculum. One is, I guess, start it a lot earlier than start climate change education earlier than it started now. Like as we were mentioning before, we didn't really have any exposure in school until high school. And I think there are definitely some basics that you could cover in middle school or even elementary school and then go farther from there. And we've talked to our guests about this and we've kind of, a lot of them have come to a consensus that rather than like one separate course, there should probably be integration into all the subjects um, of climate change, which I think makes the most sense because like you were saying before, it's not just a scientific problem, like there are social aspects too, and you could connect it to pretty much every class. So I think it would be helpful if, if there were a few units, maybe a couple or a few units in each class as you go up that kind of connect climate change to that certain topic. So like in a chemistry class, you'd learn about greenhouse gases like we did. Um, in a physics class, you could learn about like renewable energy. And then also in like social studies classes, depending on, I guess, what area of the world you're studying, you could make a connection to how they're being affected by climate change or how natural resources like plays into a conflict. So I guess those connections should be made in a few units per year. Yeah, the cross-curricular aspect of it is something that a lot of the research is suggesting would be helpful. And you're right. I mean, it, it isn't just a science issue. It affects everything. You look at climate refugees and the socioeconomic impacts and political impacts of that, and then the rise of extremism as a result of climate refugees being displaced. Like, there's just so much that you can dig into with it. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. It's hard to talk about climate change without mentioning the term doom and gloom. But it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, it shouldn't be. In the realm of environmental education, which is kind of the crowd that I roll with, there's this famous quotation from one of the leading researchers, David Sobel, and it's no tragedies before fourth grade. So kind of age nine, approximately nine, ten-ish. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you still want to expose young people to the processes of science and nature, and you can get them outside with outdoor play and learning about plants and animals and life cycles, the water cycle, the carbon cycle but not really getting into the nitty-gritty of the greenhouse effect and global warming as a problem until it's at a developmentally appropriate place. Do you agree with that? Do you think if you kind of imagine yourself around the age of nine, was that a time when you think, yeah, I could have started to comprehend and manage this? You know, it's, it's interesting because we recently had a, an interview with someone who, who was talking about the ethics of introducing young kids to, to such a, a vast problem. What I'm trying to do right now is think of other huge problems and things that were, that were introduced to us at, at such a young age. I mean, we had in elementary school, we had days where we talked about like 9-11. We had days where we discussed yeah. pretty troublesome topics. So yeah, I think, I think it could be int uh, introduced younger and maybe... <laughs> And maybe that way people won't end up having these like climate epiphanies 
super late and then freaking out because it'll just be something that kids will have known about for a while and will be comfortable grappling with because it's been introduced so young. And is a big part of that focusing more on the proactive solution side of things as opposed to just everything sucks. Okay, have a good night. <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I can't imagine any any teacher feeling comfortable just like shoving the issue out and then uh well, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just not useful to dwell so much on the problem when we when we like very much when it's like time pressure, like we have to start thinking about the solutions. I think one of the most exciting parts about the solutions is that we don't have to invent any new gizmos, quote unquote. We do have everything. We have the economic models that can work. We have examples in countries where there's political will to do it. We absolutely have the technology. I mean, you look at a guy like Elon Musk who says, why aren't more people creating electric vehicles? You know, how come I'm I still basically have cornered this market and have most of this market. I mean, he's asking for competition. He's asking for people to take a bite out of his wealth. So we have it. And yes, the window of time is shrinking in 2030 and 2050, which are two of the bigger benchmarks that we hear about. They're inching ever closer, but we know we can do it. And we, I shouldn't talk about this in the past tense. We're still in the COVID pandemic, but we obviously pivoted unbelievably quickly with that. So this broad scale societal reaction can happen. In your discussions on your podcast, what are some of the solutions that you've spent some time focusing on? Well, I'm sure there's more, but one I can think of off the top of my head, um, we talked with a climate law and policy expert, David Bookbinder, who has been involved in like some of the major environmental protection, like Supreme Court cases over the past couple decades, like Massachusetts versus EPA is one of them, yeah. where basically the EPA it was declared that the EPA could regulate greenhouse gas emissions from cars. And obviously that doesn't solve any problem further than it's already been solved, if you know what I mean. Like it's just getting an agency to do a certain thing that it should be doing already. But I guess that's a way to kind of get the political system involved and create regulation. Yeah, and just for reference, for those listening, the, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, they're villainized in the movie Ghostbusters. I won't hold that against them because there are enough positive points to that movie. But anyways, I, I digress. So yeah, certainly regulation is a huge part of it. And I'm really interested in having robust debates and discussions about the different solutions. On one hand, you have some people that say we can use the existing economy regulate it more, get government involved in orienting it towards a low carbon future, but essentially use our market-based capitalist system in a way that is more sustainable. So timely regulation, circular economy, investing in renewable technology, investing in retraining so that people who work in carbon intensive industries can transfer their skills into low carbon or no carbon industries. So that's kind of one school of thought. Another school of thought, and I am oversimplifying this a bit, but another school of thought is kind of start from scratch, rejig the economic system. You read people like Naomi Klein, they say, do away with capitalism or recreate it to such an extent that it's almost unrecognizable. Have you guys talked a bit about that, discussed about it, read about it? To be honest, I don't think we've really delved into like the economic side of things. Like we haven't really discussed anything about um, how climate change is related to the flaws of capitalism. Yeah, it's one of the big missed opportunities, I think, is that it hasn't been included in business classes, because when you talk about things like carbon pricing or cap and trade, which almost every economist says, yes, that's what you need to do in a market-based system. If you don't put a price on the thing that's causing the biggest problem, 
you're probably not going to succeed. There's an activity that we have in, in one of the books that we put out where it's kind of like a, a running case study and you get groups of students to represent different companies. So you give them a information about this fictitious but realistic company, what their annual finances are, what their carbon emissions are, what their source of power is. And then you go through a series of uh, simulations with different sets of regulations. So under a carbon tax system, under a cap and trade system, how would that affect your company in a six-month period, in a one-year period, a five-year period, a 10-year period? What would the economic impact be short-term, long-term? How much investment would you need from government to help buy a generator, for instance? I mean, is that the kind of activity that you kind of wished you had had earlier in your education? Yeah, I think those are really helpful. Like, I, I mean, I think I think it's implicit of just like having more resources specifically geared towards climate education, but just very specifically, like I, I find simulations very helpful. I remember in like seventh grade, we learned about the uh, uh, Fed funds rate through a simulation of like, you're, you are the Fed and you can change the rate. And I've never forgotten that since. Like that would be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, adding on to Adam, our school is is pretty rigid with the curriculum. Like we're we basically have like a core curriculum and only in like senior year can you really take a lot of electives. But I know probably in high schools around New York, New York City, um, you can take a lot of electives. So I think having different types of climate change electives would help. Like as you said, like um maybe a business climate change class would be really interesting. Yeah, I think there's a need for financial literacy in general. I, I hear so many high school students say, you know, why didn't we learn about taxes? Why didn't we learn about investments, mortgages, pensions? Well, all of that's tied in with climate change. You look at the number of investment funds for pensions that are tied up in carbon intensive industries, and they're valued at a certain number that assumes that those industries will continue to be carbon intensive for the next 30, 40, 50 years, which we know is not going to happen. So those values are fictitious. Whereas if you look at what is the possibility for return on investment in renewables, which is a growing industry that is going to have a lot more growth, then you suddenly make it so much more local. And people are like, well, I want to have a pension. I want to retire someday. And I want it to grow as you want a pension to do. If it so happens that the ecological and climate-friendly approach also is the more economically sound approach, and you can prove that, well, people are going to pay a lot more attention. And the research, of course, shows that the longer we delay this discussion, the more expensive it is going to be for society. Um, when you were talking about uh, investing in, in renewables, I was just thinking about Tesla. I mean, I, I'm in I'm in the yeah. finance club of my school, and uh, we, we love talking about Tesla. Tesla's a, a very big buzz stock. Oh, yeah. I mean, people... I've I've never really thought about this, but well, I mean, when when people are like getting into the hype of of Tesla, they're also doing a big a big number to support a sustainable alternative or like a just a sustainable form of transportation, which is uh pretty cool. And I think a good example of, of getting people I wouldn't say it's like tricking people, but getting people involved in uh in sustainability through reasons other than saying get involved in sustainability because it's helpful for the earth. Yeah, I mean, people are self-interested. Everyone is to a certain degree, and it, I don't think it's wrong to admit that. I mean, we all want to be safe. We all want to eat every day. And the way our market-based system works is it's driven by self-interest in a large degree. So this is what I was saying earlier about people who say, let's use the system but reorient it. Let's use a market system. Let's leverage investment and innovation and self-interest in a way that's more ecological, but also more lucrative. 
Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. When it comes to engaging students with climate solutions, it makes sense to meet them where they're at. Enter digital media. Let's talk about your podcast. So you've kind of alluded to this throughout this episode here, but how did it all come to be? What's sort of the the story behind that? So it started when, as I have mentioned before, Kevin and I were working on planning like an Earth Week assembly at our school. And this was, it was planned for April 2020. So obviously we didn't have school and it was canceled, but we had an invited Richard Rice, who's part of an organization called City Atlas at CUNY, to be a speaker in the auditorium at our school at that event. And he wasn't able to come because of the cancellation, but then it turned out that he was looking for a few high schoolers to work on a podcast project, like the one we have where we interview experts and release the episodes. And Richard was kind of, he was looking for it to be mainly run by us. Like, obviously, he helps us find guests and edit the episodes, but we have a good amount of independence in terms of planning and you know making decisions about the podcast. And you can find it on SoundCloud. Five episodes so far, but more in the shoot, is my understanding. Yeah, and we also uh, recently released it on Spotify. It's under the name Bridging the Carbon Gap. That's actually our new name. It used to be called City Atlas Teencast, but we won kind of a real podcast name. So yeah, it's on still on SoundCloud, but also on Spotify now. So what are some of the upcoming episodes that people can find on Spotify and elsewhere? We have a pre- probably one of my favorite episodes so far. We worked with a climate lawyer, David Bookbinder. I think Gabe alluded to this earlier, but yeah. Uh, he, yeah. yeah, the Massachusetts versus EPA. Uh, really interesting stuff. Like if you're into uh, law stuff, and I'm not even that into law. It was just it was just the way that he was describing the sort of politics of getting such a huge huge thing passed and and having to deal with bureaucracy and the EPA like kind of holding it holding it in a drawer. Yeah, EPA was was literally hold, holding this ordinance that needed to get approved in some file cabinet somewhere. And in order to like get that ordinance passed, David Bookbinder had to call in like a favor or find some sort of leverage. Really really interesting, cool cool stuff yeah, like plot of a movie kind of stuff it could be starring i don't know who would be a good person to play david bookbinder like george clooney maybe i don't know <laughs> yeah good call moving forward with the podcast you're seniors and obviously there's so much uncertainty with school and is it going to be virtual in person and so on and so forth do you plan to continue with this beyond high school our plan at the moment is to find Hunter students or students at other high schools, but our main focus is Hunter students in lower grades, maybe 10th and 11th grade right now, who would want to take it over next year in collaboration with Richard and City Atlas. And you know, we haven't found people that are definitely going to do it, but we're just starting the process of reaching out to younger grades. So yeah, that, that's the plan after our next few episodes and after we graduate to hand it off. Nice. So the succession planning is very much underway. Also, if I can mention one more thing, like based on what we were talking about earlier, is that okay? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. So going along with kind of the simulation, the business simulation idea and the high school education, we wanted to mention Energetic, which is 
a game that we've helped test and Richard and City Alice have developed, which is basically a New York City and New York State renewable energy building game where the players have to kind of work past obstacles like public opposition to, in a certain amount of time, I think it's like 20 or 30 years, build enough gigawatts of renewable energy sources in New York. So I would say that's one example of the type of thing similar to the simulation you mentioned that would be helpful when learning about renewable energy. Yeah, see, that makes me so excited because people are competitive by nature and people love games like Settlers of Catan or Risk. And if you can channel those competitive juices and the creativity and the innovation for real life solutions, that's some, somewhere where you can really make an impact. There's another game in, in that similar vein. It's called Solutions. It's based on Project Drawdown that ranked 80 different solutions to the climate crisis. And this game's actually coming out later this year, and I'm interviewing the creator of the game just kind of about how it was conceptualized. And yeah, it's, it's very much that same way. It's competing, racing against the clock, trying to bring the temperature down as much as possible, trying to reach ideally the Paris target, the 1.5 Celsius. These innovations are out there, and these are things that I think would be very appealing to students, and not just students, but we have a gaming culture prevalent in society, so why not use it? It's a great opportunity. Oh yeah, I was just going to add on to that. Maybe I'm not sure if there are any video games around the same topic. I know Energetic has like a virtual version, but I know a lot of people, especially now, like video games. So I wonder if there's anything kind of similar to the board games we were talking about that's more like a traditional video game. We need something like Farmville or, or Clash of Clans, but for yeah. climate change. I mean, it's kind of looking at how Energetic is, is done. It seems like you could totally do like a an idle, I think that's what they call it, like idle tycoon game where you like set stuff up and then you wait 10 hours and you collect all your resources. Like you could do that, but with like gigawatts of energy and building uh, solar and wind and like, like, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, super exciting stuff. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast, where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoor learningstore.ca So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent or just a general nature geek there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there Ian? Definitely. Thanks Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favourite podcast app. Not to be forgotten is the role of storytelling a tool that is increasingly relevant with the advent of Cli-Fi. Just before we finish off, I, I'm interested in asking you guys about literature, fictional literature that you're interested in. 
I've been told by many people that the current generation, I guess it's the Zennials or Generation Z or in Canada, Generation Z. I've heard that post-apocalyptic, that sort of genre, the post-apocalyptic genre is much more popular with Zennials. Again, you guys are, are only three of the so-called Zennials. Are you into that kind of Mad Max type post-apocalyptic thing or not so much? For me, um, sort of. I like, like overall, I really like like futuristic books, but I do enjoy like post-apocalyptic. Like I remember we were supposed to like choose this book for our English term paper. And I was like, oh no, um, I'm going to have to choose like a boring book. But I actually ended up finding this really interesting book called The Road. Its premise is like super vague, but it basically is like the world has been like burned down. And then there's like this man and his child traveling on the road. And it's a really good book that like shows like the morals of like the like the morality of like being able to like stay alive and stuff like that. Yeah. How about you, Adam and Gabe? Into the post-apocalyptic genre? Hmm. Only thing I can think of, I mean, like sci- sci-fi stuff like Ender's Game. I like that movie. Uh, it was, yeah, and I think I think it has something to do with like there's a shortage of resources on Earth or something like that, and then they have to live this like very strict lifestyle in order to survive. There was one movie I watched. I think it was pretty well known, but where like many of the people on Earth are killed off, and it's like a scientist and his family working to bring people back. I don't remember the title of the movie, but I did enjoy that. But I, w- I wouldn't really say that's the genre I'm most interested in or particularly interested in that. Any final thoughts before I let you go? Thank you for um, inviting us. I don't have any other final thoughts. Yeah, we enjoyed, enjoyed talking. Yeah, it was definitely uh, fun to be on the, the other side. <laughs> of course. Yeah, unique experience gives us some, some good empathy for what our guests uh, have to do. And yeah, thank you for having us. And that this is an amazing podcast. You're you're a great, great host. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. And thank you more broadly speaking for the work that you are doing and just how much your podcast has grown. So Bridging the Carbon Gap, check that out. Spotify. It's a great listen. Some really insightful, insightful interviews. And this episode of Talking with Green Teachers gives voice to people who are going to be living this future and we know that this future can be exciting and can be based on solutions and creativity and innovation oriented towards those solutions so may the discussion continue thanks so much guys for joining us today thank you gabriel kevin and adam have been diligently making up for their limited climate education at school and with graduation fast upon them and a succession plan in place for their podcast they've done their part to make the path for those who follow just a bit easier to navigate. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. I do have a question for you. How is your is your voice just naturally
amazing for podcasts or did you train to, to get it like this? Yeah. So full disclosure, my whole work experience is in environmental education. So I worked in uh, provincial parks in Ontario for many years. So that's where all my work experience is. But I actually went to university for drama and singing. <laughs> so I do have some voice training. Yes. <laughs> Got you. Because it, it's, it's really great. Have you guys seen the, the movie Anchorman? I know it was more kind of my vintage when I was in high school. There's this one bit where it's kind of making fun of the voice exercises that reporters would do.